0: I'm going to take a bit of a bold stance here today, and I am going to claim that nightscape photography is one of the most unique genres of photography that we have available to us as photographers. And yeah, I can go there because you know what? We are taking photos of something that is not on earth. All other genres of photography are specifically photographing things that exist here on our earth within our atmosphere, we are pointing our camera up and away from us towards the universe, towards the night sky, towards the heavens. And that brings a unique set of challenges and a unique set of opportunities and a very unique viewpoint as to what photography means. And in this episode, we are going to look under the hood at really what makes nightscape photography and the very logical, technical considerations that we can have and categorizations, but then also looking at a little bit more of a wider field as well, taking into consideration our genre of photography within the umbrella of photography itself. Hi, I'm Christine Richet, an artist and mentor to photographers around the world. Consider me your interstellar guide on the path to being a better nightscape photographer. In this podcast, we will bring together our artistic right brain and technical left brain by exploring creativity, art, and inspiration in photography, as well as diving into technique, gear, and strategy necessary to elevate your craft and photographic practice. I am so happy to be a part of your Milky Way journey. This is the After Dark Photography Podcast. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode. I'm so happy to have you here with me. Today's episode is a little bit of like a higher level view of this genre of photography that we all know and love. Now. In the intro, I called it nightscape photography. There are lots of different names. <laughs> I feel like, you know, in terms of the types of photography and genres that exist out there, this is one that is relatively new. Um, it's been most popularized in, I would say, the last like decade or two when digital cameras have been able to capture more of the night sky. It was possible beforehand. But there were a lot more issues that came into play with doing night photography on film. More often, night photography on film, you know, it's its kind of the opposite of what now is now. Like people used to be getting out on full moon nights when there was actually more light out is when people would be getting out and photographing um, at night. Less so of photographing the stars, etc. at night, there were a lot of things that came into play, like reciprocity failure with film. When you get into um, really long exposures and, and that type of thing, your film just doesn't work the same. Uh, so l- nightscape photography is a newer genre of photography with the advent of technology. But because of that, you know, there, there are different names for it. Some people just say, you know, I'm an astrophotographer, but then there are people who say, I'm an astrophotographer, and then they see people doing landscape astrophotography, another way to say it, and they say, well, you're not an astrophotographer. <laughs> you're taking pictures of the of Earth. That's What's astro about Earth? Um, and then there's nightscape. Now, the term nightscape, as um, so far as I can tell, is coined by Roy Spear, and he started doing uh, photography at night uh, very, very early, uh, is often called father of nightscape photography. I like that term. I like the nightscape term. I tend to use it. It's like landscape, but at night, uh, it rolls off the tongue a little bit easier than landscape astrophotography. How many syllables do you want to say? I like saying two. So (laughs) I personally go with calling it nightscape photography, but around non-photographers, I will say that I do landscape astrophotography because people who are not in the know, uh, will be like, what the heck is nightscape photography? Now, sometimes that can be useful because then it can be like, all right, let's have a conversation about it, uh, which is, you know, one of my favorite things to do as I'm here talking in your ear again. Obviously, I like talking about photography. So that can be something that, that helps bring it up too. But the genre of photography, it's one that... When we're in it, and we're really in it, sometimes it's hard to remember how other people see it. We're going to talk today about the six different types of nightscape images that you can create. And pretty much everything is going to fit into those six um, in a variety of different ways. But outside of our world, where we understand all the nitty gritty that goes into this, pretty much everyone else thinks that the work we're doing is like composite work or not actually photography. I was at a gathering of, it was a reunion for people who had worked at NASCAD um, University. And I worked at NASCAD uh, for quite a while. I worked in the uh, equipment cage. Sorry, you don't you don't know what I'm talking about, you'd be like, you worked in a cage? Anyways, that's just what you called it. Like, you worked in the cage. Um, Because it got locked up, it had lots of photography equipment in it, but it was an office um, that ran the photography department. I worked in there as a student assistant, and then I uh, taught uh, at NASCAD as well. I taught in the photography department for a very long time, uh, basically until um, I had my son. So I was teaching there from uh, 2008 until 2016. And there was a reunion put together over the summer that was just absolutely lovely seeing people I haven't seen for such a long time. And of course talking about the work that I do um, was very interesting because of the people who were there um, some were still working in photographic capacity they were working with photography in one way or another and um, art historians, uh, teaching, working still as a photographer, um, a curator, lots of different positions, um, as well as, uh, a few, uh, multiple, uh, retired professors who are my professors. So it was just lovely to get to like see them and hang out and, and chat. Um, but also a lot who were not still working in photography. Uh, so we had a really kind of range across the board and, um, I was a little bit of an odd one out as one of the people there who's making 100% of my income um, from photography. There's a few of us there, but not as many um, as one might think at that at this point with the, the gathering of people who are there. But even in that, there were conversations that I had with people there about what I do and what I take pictures of. And it was brought in a way in conversation where my type of photography isn't really like photography. <laughs> and that's not to say this in a in a bad or negative way. That it was not the context whatsoever in the conversations had, but what I do and what you probably do as well is a pretty big departure from other genres of photography. It is normal for me to take one to two to three hours to create one image. There are not many other genres of photography where you are literally shooting for that amount of time to create one singular image. And because of that, this genre can definitely be seen as not, I'm going to do air quotes here, real photography, but... Um, it's it's seen in a different way and i think that's useful to understand as a person who's creating these types of images and as someone who is showing your images so you know if you're just taking these photos and and it's in a vacuum you're not doing anything you're not showing your photos to anyone you're not having conversations about your photos with anyone you probably don't need to listen to today's episode. Well, it's still useful because I'm going to go over the different types of of Milky Way photos, um, and you might not be uh, familiar with some of them. But, you know, a lot of what I do, it comes not in the creation of the image, but it comes after the creation of the image and helping people understand the way in which the image was created, the way in which it is representing reality that's different from other genres. And that conversation is different depending on who I'm having the conversation with. If it's someone who knows literally nothing about photography, it's going to be a different conversation versus someone else who is a photographer, they are going to have a little bit more information Needed before they're going to get on board, because you know, if I say to them, "Well, I took this photograph at seven thirty p.m. and I took these photographs from uh, twelve a.m. until two a.m. and this is my final image," they're going to be like, "That's not a photograph." They're going to be like, "That's a composite. It's a composite image put together." And I say, "Well, no, actually, we would define this as a blended image, and it is representative of this." And that you know, there would be a little bit more of a dialogue that has to happen. In that case. And for me, it's all just education. It's all just communicating about what it is that we do and the reasons why we do it in the way that we do it. And then also, I don't particularly care what other people think. I am happy to educate. I am happy to help people understand. But there are some people, and this is not in conversations that I have one-on-one with individuals that I know um, or that I meet. This, These are generally comments and things that come up on the wilds of the internet. Uh, and there are some people who are just gonna disagree. And they believe what they believe, which is completely fine. We all have our own opinions um, and belief systems. And what I'm saying to them does not compute. It is does not fit in with their view of what photography is and should be. And therefore, what I'm doing is wrong. That's fine. Um, I don't give too much attention to people who really, really disagree with what I'm talking about unless they can come up with things that make me think a little bit. Be- because I don't want... As I'm saying this, I'm like, I just don't pay attention to anyone who disagrees with anything that I say ever. No, um, that would be very close minded. (laughs) So I do like to be open for conversation and dialogue, but the other person has to be too. So it's all about the way in which someone replies to me. Um, sometimes I will have these conversations uh, with people and they're very open-minded, but they do have a very different perspective. Those are fun conversations to have because I get to um, see into their world and their thought process uh, in a way that is um, like non-confronting. <laughs> a lot of times on the internet, things can be very confrontational um, people get passionate about stuff, which is great. But uh, yeah, so it, it all depends on the manner with which the conversation happens. I do find, though, that very often my place in creating the images also then afterwards there becomes an education point in communicating what's going on in the image. How is the image created? Um, how is this representative or not of the actual reality? How does it relate to our optical system and what we can actually perceive versus what can we get through technology? All of those questions and things will come up from sharing your work, from putting your work out there. And I think there's a lot of interesting dialogue. Like I said before, though, that dialogue is different depending on the knowledge of the person coming into it. And I have to say, most often, people who don't know anything about photography are much more open to um, being in the image that I've created and um, taking that image and 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 feeling a connection to it. Versus people who do have knowledge in photography, but maybe not necessarily astrophotography. That's where I find I get more pushback, um, if it comes, where there needs to be more of that dialogue in education, because they already have a certain level of knowledge around photography. And frankly, astrophotography, nightscape photography does not fit in to the same space as other genres of photography. You know, if there's like a Venn diagram of the things that we do as photographers um, in astrophotography versus other photography, there will be overlap, but there will be a lot more overlap in other genres, and then Astro would be like off to the side (laughs) with a bunch that's not overlapping. So that's fine, but I believe we should be aware of that. And especially if you're the type of person who you're just starting to put your work out um, and show your work to people and and have it online, have it in spaces where people can look at it, we need to understand the way in which we talk about our work is just as important as the work itself. We're not individuals in a position where our work is going to speak for itself. Uh, That's something that you hear a lot with photography. Like, I'm not going to write about it. My work will speak for itself. And it's like, oh, you know what? It probably isn't going to. And in order to be able to speak about your work in a way that is effective, in a way that will communicate to multiple people, it does help to understand the overall context of where our genre fits in, which is what we've been talking about. And then also the technical pieces around how we create our images. And that's where I want to go with the rest of this episode is looking into the different types of Milky Way photographs, giving a high-level overview of them, and then diving in a little bit into the mechanics of them. So this is meant to be two-part. For someone who's already out there and you're creating images already, this is going to be a really good overview and a way in which you can um, describe and categorize the work that you're doing. And for someone who is newer to this genre of photography, this is going to open up your mind to different ways that we can get out and create images that will give you so many more ideas for what you want to create and will also start to make sense other images that you've seen where you're like, why does it look like that? How do I, Why do my images not look like those images? That kind of thing. So that's what we're going to be um, diving into in the rest of today's episode. So the first thing I would just want to put out is that I'm going to talk about six types of Milky Way photos, and within these six types of Milky Way photos, we can encapsulate pretty much any image that you want. Now, if you're the type of person who's like, I defy, I defy titles and names and categories. Um, I know I certainly felt like that when I was a teenager. Um, I will say it's not that each of these types of Milky Way photos has to look a certain way, but it is to do with the technique behind photographing it. So, the six types that we have and I'll have these on the um, on the show notes page as well. So, if you're like, "Ah, Christine's going over things too quickly, etc." you can always hop on over to the show notes that's on uh, afterdarkphotographypodcast.com and you will find them. So, our six types are a single, a panoramic, a stacked, a blend, a composite, and a tract. And these six types of Milky Way photos All other images can fit underneath the umbrella of one of these. Now, I gave them to you in this particular order because that's generally the particular order that I find people work in. So we all start with taking a single photo of the night sky. And a single is exactly what you would expect it to be. It is when you have an image that is the result of depressing your shutter and creating one single frame. Now, you may create lots more images before that, like do test images for focus, uh, test images for composition, all that kind of stuff, waiting for the Milky Way to get in the right position, all of those types of things. You can take tons and tons of photos, but the one image that we see and we put up is this one single expression of depressing the shutter speed. That is a single frame. My recommendation to every single person who is interested in becoming a Milky Way photographer, taking beautiful images of the Milky Way, is that you get real good at taking single shots of the Milky Way. Now, the problem with a single shot is that you literally only have the data from that one single image, and that's going to be um, signal anywhere from 10 to 30 seconds of shutter speed and a maximum aperture of anywhere from f1.4 to f2.8 or 3.5 or or even f4. That's not a lot of signal. And I'm not going to go down the signal rabbit hole in today's podcast. We'll be here for a long time. Uh, But basically, signal is created only from your shutter speed and your aperture. Your ISO is just an amplification of signal. So with a single shot, You just don't have a ton of signal to play around with. So there's going to be more noise in your sky um, and your foreground. And depending on the light that's falling on your foreground, you will have um, a very dark foreground or you'll have a noisy foreground. Um, You won't have a lot of data there. There are people and photographers out there who are purists and they only like single frames shot of the Milky Way. Um, To them, that is an image that is more true, uh, because it is just that single frame. I live in a slightly different camp where um, my images are not true. None of my images are quote-unquote true, um, because everything is subjective when we get into photography, we're pointing our camera at a specific place, we're cropping at the edges at a specific place, we're using a specific focal length, um, we're going out a specific time, uh, we're using a certain shutter speed, all of these things mean that, you know, the earth is, for me, my source, data but I am not creating something that is a true representation um, of that source data. It's like a painter is using um, the world as their maybe not all painters but um, you know let's say a landscape painter is using the world as their source um, but their actual medium is using their paintbrush. so for me my medium is photography. So I don't really come into this like single photos or better camp. some people do and some people love that that's fine. And if that's you, I'm not throwing shade at you. That's completely fine if that's what you like. Remember, this is art. <laughs> we all get to do whatever in the heck we want to do. But we should start with a single. I don't I don't like saying the word should, should do this, should do that. Um, I find most often after someone says you should do this, it's just like, don't listen. <laughs> just stop listening. Uh, the reason I say we should start with a single is because it gives us the base, foundational things that we need to know in terms of photographing the Milky Way without getting too complicated, without throwing other variables into the mix that might end up messing us up a little bit. So we start with a single. Now, after a single, I find my students like to do panoramics. Now, a panoramic is just multiple single single shots that you stitch together. That's a panoramic. Um, I have two categories of panoramics. I'm really good at naming things. So my first category is a large sweeping panoramic. Yeah, like I said, Real good (laughs) at naming things. But this is a panoramic that you would be familiar with. So when we think of panoramics, we think of things that are covering like an angle of view of like 180 degrees, you know? You start over here on your left and you go all the way over here to your right and you get the whole Milky Way arch and you're getting a ton of this beautiful landscape in. That's what I call a large sweeping panoramic where we are um, taking multiple images across um, our frame to get a wider field of view into our image, um, into a single final image that we stitch together. The other type of panoramic, I call a vertical panoramic. Other people call them a vertorama. I can't use that <laughs> and have a straight face at the same time. So I just call mine vertical panoramics. But this is when you are um, taking an image and then you take one or two images up or down. So let's say you're photographing the sky, but you're not getting a lot of the landscape in. So then you take one or two images panning down to get a little bit more of the foreground. This is something I do all the time, photographing at longer focal lengths. So I often uh, shoot the Milky Way at focal lengths of 24, 35 millimeters, even 50. And when I do that, there's not a lot of room (laughs) to have a foreground and I love to have an image, in, a foreground in my images. That's just a big part of how I create. So I will do a vertical panoramic to get everything in. Pretty much all of my images um, are vertical panoramics. Not always 100%, but like, let's say a solid 90% of my images are. So two different types of panoramics, but again, they're just single frames that are being stitched together. Now, a note, If you're the type of person you're like, oh, I want to do a big panoramic, I want to do Christine's, quote unquote, large sweeping panoramic uh, with the Milky Way arch, then you are listening at the right time because the best time to do that is early in the season when the Milky Way, um, we're seeing the Milky Way as it's rising and it's not getting super high up in the sky. As for those of us at more northern latitudes, if you live closer to the equator, well, You screwed. No, (laughs) you're not. But what happens is as we get later in the season here, uh, when we live more north, uh, the Milky Way gets higher and higher and higher in the sky. So you're not able to just take one row across and get foreground and Milky Way at the same time. You have to do a couple rows across. And uh, if you live a lot closer to the equator, that's just kind of your life. You know, you get to see the Milky Way so high up in the sky. You see parts of the Milky Way core that my camera has never laid eyes on before. Um, so it does depend on where you live. But in general, there's of northern hemisphere, a little bit more northerly, um, earlier in the season, so March, April, you're able to get the Milky Way as it's rising up and you can get that whole um, arch of the Milky Way and do it with just one Portrait orientation frame going across, so you don't have to do multiple rows. So think of um, your panoramics as rows and columns. So earlier in the season, it's just multiple columns going across, but later in the season, it's multiple columns and multiple rows. Might be two rows, might be three rows. It just all depends. Those images also look really nice. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. There's there's a lot of photographers who will do those multi-row panoramics. They look really cool. Uh, they're just more complex to put together. So that's something to take into consideration when we're doing our panoramics. After doing panos, I'm going to recommend you start stacking. And stacking is kind of fun. I <laughs> have people who... um like to kind of argue with me about stacking sometimes when I'm doing my free trainings which I just find funny, because stacking is specific to night photography, to astrophotography. There are some very specific and not often times that it is used in daytime photography, but stacking is a nighttime photography specific thing. Uh, In fact, I remember the first time that someone said it to me. I was out photographing with another um, astrophotographer who I'd met online. It was taking me to a uh, to a specific spot underneath. Um, one of the, we have two bridges that go across Halifax Harbor. They uh, connect Halifax to Dartmouth. It was taking me down to this one spot, like underneath the bridge, super shady, by the way, like just youth Christine, like meeting up with someone who I only know from online, um, to go meet under a bridge with my expensive camera gear. Anyways, it was a super nice guy. Um, still continues to be, and I love following along with his images, but, (laughs) um, but I remember, and if he listens to this, he'll know, and he'll probably laugh, but he said something, and he said he's like, "Oh, well, I stack my images." And I was like, "Oh yeah, me, me too. I stack, of course, I stack everything. Um, yeah, no, I didn't, by the way. I had no sweet clue what that meant, but I didn't want to seem dumb. So I played along, that I knew what he was talking about, And then went home and I promptly Googled, "WTF is stacking." I didn't put that in there. that was just in my brain. Uh, so what is stacking? Why is it useful? And why do I think you need to know how to do it? So here's the thing. When we get into astrophotography, we are dealing with very, very low light. We're working with starlight, and uh, to the point where in order for starlight to actually show up, we need the extended exposures that our cameras can give us. You know, our eyes can't even see to the degree that our cameras are. It's really low light. It means there's not a lot of signal the quantity of light is just exceptionally low, so we're going to have a lot of noise. And that noise can be distracting in our images. And the amount of noise you get depends on the gear that you're shooting with. So are you shooting with uh, top-of-the-line gear, beautiful sensor, lovely dynamic range, great low-light capabilities, um, and then also have really lovely lenses with big apertures, et cetera? If that's the case, you're not going to have as much noise but for those of us who aren't shooting with that gear um we're gonna be having our single images with a ton of noise and it's okay don't get me i'm, I'm not noise bashing here by the way like noise exists like there is there are different types of noise um upstream and downstream, um, there's read noise, but then there's actually like shot noise. There's noise that actually just exists because of the way that light particles move. Um, I'm not bashing noise, but it can be distracting from your image. It can be hard to see details in your image if there's too much noise. And we can fix it with stacking. The thing with stacking is you don't need to buy new gear you don't need to buy spend lots of money on new lenses and new gear. Depending on the um, operating system that you use for your computer, you may have to purchase software. If you are on a Mac, like I am on a Mac, you should, I recommend purchasing what's called Starry Landscape Stacker. I forget the exact cost. I think it's between $30 and $50 it is well worth it. Well, well, well worth it. If you can find a way to purchase it and have that software, do it um, because it will make a world of difference. If you are on a Windows computer, it's free. So uh, the software that I recommend for doing nightscapes is called Sequitor and um, we'll have these in the show notes as well. Um, and it's free for you to use. So um, those are the two softwares you use. You don't need to have any other specific equipment or anything like that. There are things that help. It helps to have an intervalometer, but you don't need it. um, Because all that stacking does is it removes things that are different. That's what stacking is. So the actual process that we're using is called um, doing a median stack. And what that does is it looks at all of the pixels that you have, and it keeps the pixels that are the same and it gets rid of the pixels that are different. So here's the thing, we're photographing the night sky, it's the same. It's the same, on the same, on the same. That's the lovely thing about it. If things dramatically change in the Milky Way, we have much bigger problems getting rid of noise in our images. Uh, We've got some, you know, cataclysmic world apocalypse issues coming into play. The starry sky is the same. So if you take 15 photographs in a row, all of those stars are going to be in the exact same position and orientation and relationship to one another. You know it's not the same? The noise. The noise is not the same. Noise is random. So, Stacking keeps what's the same, gets rid of what's different. All right. The stars are the same. The noise is different. So if you take enough photos and you stack them together in the software, it will recognize what's the same. It will keep that. It will neutralize. It will median and get rid of that which is different. That's what stacking is. Stacking is useful for every single astrophotographer. I don't care what your gear is. You can make better photos if you stack your photos doesn't matter. Now, do you have to stack everything? No, no, you don't. Like sometimes I'm going to do a tracked shot. We'll talk about tracking here in a few minutes. I need a track shot that's four minutes long. I take 10 four minute exposures. That's 40 minutes for the sky. But it's just like not a photo that's that great. But I just kind of, I want to take it. But I don't think I want to print it or do anything big with it. No, I'm not going to spend 40 minutes on that. no. (laughs) But if it is a photo that's something that's really important to me, then I'm gonna take the time. I'm gonna stack it. Yeah, I don't care. I'm only gonna take one photo in the entirety of this night. I'm gonna make it a darn good photo. So stacking is, you know, it's just absolutely fundamental to have that in your tool belt. You want to, um, you want to be able to stack and reduce noise with anything that you do. And that applies to your sky, it will also apply to your foreground. If your foreground is not moving, and you take multiple shots of that foreground, um, you can also reduce noise in your foreground as well. So stacking can help with that too. Okay, now, it, when I talk about stacking and it being specific to astrophotography, the people who argue with me are generally people who think I'm talking about focus stacking. That is something that we can do in astrophotography as well, but it is different from median stacking, which is what we just talked about. Focus stacks would fall under the umbrella of the next type of Milky Way photo, which is called a blend. And a blend is going to be a minimum of two images. Now, in order for it to be categorized as a blend, the very, very key thing here, and this is written as a rule in astrophotography communities, but this is one of those things outside of astrophotography communities. People aren't going to care or know about this distinction. They're going to call all of these images composites. That's fine. They don't need to know. They call it whatever the heck they want to call it. We know within our community um, what these uh, terminology, what it means. So a blend is a photograph that is made up of multiple images, but they are taken from the same tripod position and orientation. So what that means is I might take my foreground during blue hour so that I have more light on my foreground, I can get a shorter exposure, I can get more depth of field, and then I will take my photograph for the night sky when it becomes full dark. But for it to be considered a blend, you have to have your tripod in the same place, pointing in the same direction. (laughs) Sometimes we're like, well, my tripod's in the same place. And it's like, yeah, but did you rotate your, your ball head 180 degrees? That is called a composite, my friend, not a blend. So the idea behind a blend is that the image itself can be real. In a sense, you can't see me. I'm doing air quotes with real because I've talked about this (laughs) a few times already. We know what I think about it actually being real, but it can be quote unquote real in that this particular view could be recreated um, with the same gear combination from the same um, perspective by another photographer. That's what a blend is. A blend is same tripod location, um, looking in the same direction, just taken at different times or different exposures. So the types of blends that you look at, um, you basically have different natural light that you're using on the foreground. So you can do a blue hour blend where you take your foreground during blue hour, a personal favorite of mine if I can get to a place for blue hour, I try to, um, because it, it blue hour is just really lovely. Then we have a starlit blend. So using a much longer exposure for your foreground to get more light on the foreground. Uh, Then we would also have a moonlight blend um, where you take the image of the sky when the moon is not up in the sky and then you take the image of the foreground um, after the moon rises or before the moon sets. That's a moonlit. Uh, There are also artificial blends too. like If, for instance, you are using different lighting and you're using low-level lighting or you're using flashlights and you're moving those lights around and taking multiple images to get multiple different um, light on different spots, things like that, that you're going to mask together in Photoshop, that can be a blend as well. I say can be a blend because there are also times when you can do a single shot and use low level lighting, LED lights on your foreground, um, or use flashlight, if you're really good, (laughs) you can get your flashlight in, that uh, those could be singles as opposed to blends. They don't have to be a blend. Now, the other type of blend is what I talked about with a focus stack. And a focus doc, basically at night, you know, we're taking images of our foreground and we're shooting with the biggest aperture that we have so we can get the most light that we we, um, can. But the problem with that is big aperture, small, small depth of field. And what happens is if we're focusing on the horizon, the stuff that's close to us is not in focus. So you may decide to take multiple images where you rack your focus back closer to you and you focus stack and put those together. Um, I've done that before. I do not love doing it at night. Uh, most often I shoot with starlight exposures at night. And when I'm shooting a starlight exposure at night, they're long, <laughs> eight minutes to 15 minutes, I'm gonna focus stack that, I'm going to do at least four images. Well, all of a sudden, if I'm doing 15-minute images, that's an hour just to photograph the, the foreground. I would rather photograph that foreground during blue hour and have a one-second exposure at an aperture of f8. Um, heck of a lot easier to do and heck of a lot easier to put together. Um, stitching together focus stacks in Photoshop, not my idea of a good time. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, I'm pretty darn good at Photoshop, but I prefer not to have to put together focus stacks if at all possible. Okay, so then we get into uh, the last two. So composite, Uh, this is gonna be our fifth one. This is what anyone who doesn't exist inside this world thinks all of our images, other than a single or a panel are. They say that they're composites. But our definition of a composite is any image that is, um, taken from multiple different tripod points. So uh, this could be on one night and you're out shooting all at the same night, but you took um, your foregrounds while you're out and then you hike back to the car and you shot your um, sky frames from the, from the car. They could be pointing in the right direction. They could be a composite that is um, kind of like a, a quote unquote true, composite, Um, but it's still a composite because you didn't take all of the images from the same place. So inside this world, that's, that's the thing that people tend to care about. But composites can also be whatever in the heck you want them to be. Take a picture of the sky in the southern hemisphere while you're on a trip and then come back and then take photos of a foreground during daytime and put them together. That's a composite. It can be whatever you want it to be. And you can come up and create some really cool stuff when you do that. Now, there will be people who get a little bit frustrated and annoyed and like, that's not real and yada, yada. And it's like, you know what? It's my art. I do what I want. What I would say in my molly code of ethics, my kind of ethos on this is like, I tell people, um, I have a particular image that is um, pretty popular and it is a sunflower image. But you know what? When sunflowers are growing, they follow the sun. So at night, they actually turn back to the east. You can't get a southwest facing Milky Way um, with with uh, sunflowers that are pointing to the east, does not line up. So I photographed the Milky Way to the southwest, and then I rotated to photograph the sunflowers. The Milky Way was not coming up in behind the sunflowers in that manner, Uh, so I told people that I said, you know, this is a composite. It is taken same night, same place, but I rotated my angle of view so I could get this lining up the way I wanted to for my image. This is simple as that. Um, this is like my thing. If I'm going to do a composite, I'll do one and I'm completely fine with it. I'm creating something that I want to create from my brain, but I'm going to tell people that I've done that. Um, and especially It's like two parts. Some people just like don't care. They're like, that looks really cool. Um, Other people though, maybe, and especially in my position where I educate and I teach, people are coming in and looking at my work and they're like, oh, cool, I can create that. And then they go out and they're like, well, why don't mine work? What's wrong with mine? Um, So I always like to be transparent for those reasons as well. Then the last type is attract. Milky Way photo. Now this, I always have this as the last one because this means more gear. So everything else previous to this, tripod, some type of head, so ball head, three-way pan and tilt head, whatever it is, whatever you like to use, and camera. That's all you need. That's it. Lots of other stuff you can have. Yeah, you can have a nodal rail, you can have a different panoramic head, you can have intervalometers, um, tons of different things you can have, but you don't need them. I know I'm not not being very good Christine the Enabler here, hey? Um, but you don't need them. To do a track shot, this is now a separate piece of gear that you're investing in. And basically a tracker, a star tracker, is a device that goes on top of your tripod in between your tripod legs and your tripod head. So you will take your, so I use a ball head, take my ball head off of my tripod, put my tracker on, attach the ball head to my tracker. Now, not everyone attaches uh A ball head or a pan tilt head, a tripod head to their tracker. Some will just attach their camera directly to their tracker. My interest is landscape astrophotography, um, and if you're attaching your camera directly to a tracker, you only have two axes to uh, work with, so you can't get things level. Uh, You can't get a nice level horizon. So that's why I always use my ball head on top of my tracker. But the point of the tracker is that you will align it with polar north or polar south, if you're in northern versus southern hemisphere. And then you'll turn it on, and it rotates in the opposite direction of the Earth at the rate with which we are rotating. So it is going to counteract the Earth's rotation. And all of a sudden, that pesky 500 rule, that pesky I can only go to X number of shutter speed before I get trailing, no longer exists because your camera is moving to counteract the movement of the earth. Pretty fricking cool. I mean, I've been shooting with a tracker for a long time now, but I remember the first time I saw an instructable on a barn door tracker that you could create yourself. And I was like, oh, I wish I knew how to do all of the things they're showing me how to do in this instructable. I remember sending it to my brother and being like, this is so cool. And like, part of me was being like, I hope he offers to make it for me. Uh, (laughs) um, You can make your own, by the way, you can look up instructables for barn door trackers. I don't necessarily recommend that. Um, I would recommend looking at getting an actual tracker. The ones that I use, I have um, I have a, a video on this um, on my Facebook page, I think also on my YouTube. Uh, if you go to uh forward slash gear and you go down to the tracker section, I've linked it there. Um, so wherever I have that video added is linked there. I personally like to use the uh, Skyguider. I have the iOptron, um, the Skyguider Pro. I also have the Sky Tracker. Um, I like that actually, the the smaller one for doing more wide angle stuff. I have the Move Shoot Move as well. Very nice and very compact. Um, the thing I will say about the Move Shoot Move is that um, its brilliance is the laser that lets you auto like lets you align polar align so so quickly. But the thing, you can just get a laser and do that <laughs> with uh, your sky guide sky tracker um, pro very easily. I will be looking at probably getting um, another tracker. This year, um, there is the a couple newer ones that have the same payload. They have the same 11-pound payload, but they have a go-to functionality built in, basically, which is useful if you are trying to take photographs of um, objects that are up in the night sky that are more faint um that are more difficult to see on camera Uh, so i will probably be purchasing something like that this year and uh and playing around with it more probably in the nicer weather you know the time to learn something is not when it is minus 15 degrees celsius outside just gonna say Um, but so a tracker is now like next level and that's why i always put this at the end of my list Because you kind of have to have the ability to do the rest of the images in order to put together a good tracked photo. Because inherently, a tracked image is always two images. At minimum, it's two images because the tracker is moving your camera. So your camera is moving. If your camera is moving over a long exposure, Yeah, your foreground is going to be blurry, so you have to have the experience of blending images together, knowing how to go through Photoshop and take a sky frame and match it with a foreground frame, um, make a selection, uh, do a mask, blend them together, have them look well, all of that kind of stuff. Like it, you need to have that knowledge before you get into working with a tracker. If you don't have that, it. Doesn't make any sense. That's actually one of the reasons I do have a class on tracking. I have a star tracking for nightscape photography class where we go over wide field um, astrophotography with a tracker. We also get into doing deep sky work. We'll see people starting to take their first deep sky photos of the Orion Nebula, Andromeda, the Pleiades, um, just beautiful targets that are up in the sky. But I don't. You, you won't find that as a public-facing course. I don't offer that to just anybody. Uh, you have to have the prerequisite of going through my Milky Way Photography Masterclass first so that I know that you have the knowledge to be able um, to use a tracker and uh, put your images together. It is not an entry-level thing. I will have people come into my free trainings on Milky Way Photography and be like, okay, I'm going to get a tracker. Which one am I going to get? And I'll be like, do you know how to stack photos? Be like, no, I haven't done that. It's like, have you gotten really good single posts? No, I haven't done that. But I know trackers get me really good images. And the reality is <laughs> you're just going to spend 500 to 1,000 bucks on something that is going to make you frustrated. So uh, trackers are not a place to start, but they are a place and a rabbit hole that you will probably get into at some point um, in your astrophotography Journey, Um, A tracker might be a little bit of a gateway drug into scopes and larger mounts and all of those things. Um, But that's also the beauty of this is that you can create to the level with which you want to and there's always more that you can do. There is tons, tons more that I could learn. If all I did right now was just stopped everything else and just dove into learning, um, I could learn so much more Um, in this world of deep sky photography and mounts and even just astronomy in general. I had a comment on a video that I'd done and they're like, well, this is for intermediate um, astronomers. And I was like, no, it's not. I was like, I am happy if it is useful for them. I was like, but I am not an astronomer. I am not even an amateur astronomer. I don't even know how to pronounce half the things that are up there. Uh, I just really like taking pictures of them. (laughs) I like making art. I like making things that are beautiful. I like having people connect with my images and feel something more. That's what I'm here for. Um, So, you know, there are rabbit holes that we can go down. And yes, if you get a tracker, you might just start to go down some of those. But the thing about a tracker is that, yeah, it gets you beautiful skies. Using a tracker will bring out so much detail and color that you never could have imagined exists in the night sky. Things that we just don't see, like it's just straight up, we do not see it with our eyes. Our eyes at night are adapted to see movement and threats. They are not adapted to see color. There's no reason that our eyes need to be able to see color in the night sky at night So they have not adapted to that. They've adapted to see movement from something like a big cat that might be coming to eat us and to also be able to see light so we can navigate by the stars. But outside of that, we don't need to have color vision at night. So it just doesn't exist. So what we can actually start to capture with our cameras and see that is real, that is a real representation of the color that exists in the sky that we just don't get to see is so cool. I get so, so excited um seeing all of that uh, color showing up in my images. Even some people like people who don't really like air glow in their images, um, because it is an earthly phenomena, it's not something that exists out in the night sky outside of our atmosphere. And so they kind of like oh, like I want to get rid of that. I don't like having air glow. I personally love airglow, I think it's stunning, like the waves of airglow that are in the sky. um, I get a lot of green airglow, but sometimes if I get like an orange or red, it just to me adds this whole other layer of depth and detail. And you tend to get more of this when you're getting more signal and you get more signal when you're tracking because you can take longer shutter speeds. So uh, tracking is not the place to start, And it's also not the place to end, depending on what you want to do. But it is a spot that I know a lot of my students, um, they strive to get there. You know, they're like, one day I'm going to get a tracker and I'm going to come in and I'm going to learn this and, and take my photographs to that next level. So that's an overview. Shall we just go back quick? We have our singles, then we have panoramics, we have stacked photos, blends, Composites and tracked photos, and you can mix and match within that. (laughs) You can have a blended stacked panoramic, you can also have a um, blended stacked tracked panoramic. Imagine how long that would take you if you're gonna stack a tracked photo. So, a tracked photo is anywhere from like two minutes to four minutes. And then you're going to do a panoramic, which could be six to ten images. All of a sudden, it's just like, "Whoo, okay, I'm going to do ten shots that are two minutes apiece, so that's twenty minutes per shot." Then I'm going to do another ten shots, that's two hundred minutes. Like, you know, we're getting into a long time here. Um, and then my <laughs> daughter takes my phone, and all of a sudden, takes fifty photos in the time span of less than a minute, all of her tongue. You know, there are different different types of photography for different types of people. Uh, If you want some quiet contemplation under the night sky, there are lots of different ways you can do that with your camera. Um, Or if you just want some documentation of the food that my daughter just ate, you can pick up my phone and that's what you will see. Uh, So the idea with today's podcast is to kind of understand the place that nightscape photography exists within the photography community at large, and also to dive a little bit deeper into the education around the different types of images that we can be creating, hopefully to get your mind to open up a little bit. Like maybe as I was talking through some of these types of photos, you're like, oh, I could do this or I could do this. Um, It might start to help you understand why some of the images that you see out there look the way that they do. And that's really what I want to get you thinking about As we move forward and as we start to um, get into thinking about the next Milky Way season starting, depending on when you're listening to this, if you're listening as it's um, going live, because all of a sudden there are so many options for how we can represent the scene that we're photographing and how we can get across the idea that we have about it. And when we understand the ways that we can create the images, and when we also have this knowledge so that we can then talk about our images in a way that's informed, that just informs our viewer that much more and it gives them that much more um, understanding and depth and detail into the image itself and will help them be more a part of the image. And for me, that's the goal. I'm not creating in a vacuum. I'm not creating images just for me. I'm creating images that I want to share with people that I want people to be able to connect with and to feel something when they look at it. And I don't know about you, but I feel a heck of a lot more connected to anything in this world when I understand it more. So hopefully today has given you a little bit of an insight in there. I'd love to hear from you what you think of today's podcast episode. If you feel so inclined, I would also love if you could hop on over to iTunes and give a rating on the show. That always helps people who are um, listening to the show uh, or thinking about listening to it. it, helps give them a little bit of an idea of what to expect. Thank you again for being here with me. I am wishing you clear nights and starry skies. Take care.